you guys weren't half bad. All right. He was joking with me yesterday. He's like, I left town just so that wouldn't happen. <laughs> That's what he gets for making fun of me all these weeks. Oh. Anyways, hey, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. If you would, if you open up that program you got on your way in, inside that program is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along during this time or to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get started. Father, thank you for who you are. Father, thank you that your character is never changing, that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are Savior. Father, I pray as we head into this time of teaching right now that your word is the only word that is living and active. I pray that you speak to us individually and you speak to us together as a, as a local church. I pray as I often do that I as the communicator become much less, but that you as our precious Jesus, as our King of kings and Lord of lords, become much more. Father, speak because we are listening. In your son's name we said, Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the very first time, I want to give you a quick recap into what we've been talking about. Over the, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series called Scent Piercing the Darkness. Now, we've been doing this series for the last several weeks. This is actually the fourth mini-series that we've done in a longer study in one of the longest and most important books of the entire Bible, the book of Acts. Now, Acts was written by a Gentile doctor named Luke, and what Luke is giving us an account of is the early movement of Jesus, how it began in the city of Jerusalem and over the course of 30 years spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now, this specific series, Piercing the Darkness, has been focusing on a key leader of that early movement, a man named the Apostle Paul. And what we've seen is that Paul and a team of other believers have carried out these missionary journeys to establish churches in cities that are along the Aegean Sea, in countries that today would be Turkey and Greece. And so today we're going to be kicking off in Acts chapter 20. And what's happening is the Holy Spirit has made it clear to Paul that it's time for him to return to Jerusalem and from there on to Rome. So Paul's ministry is going to radically change. Now, Paul is going to be stopping in a port city called Miletus. If you look at your maps there, it's kind of near the center, a little bit of upper left of your map there. And while he's there, he's going to send for the leaders, the pastors and elders of the Ephesian church, because he has one final charge to give them. And so that's where we're going to start this morning. So if, you got your, if you're following along your note sheet, we're in a section titled, Saying Goodbye. Open up your Bibles, turn on your apps. We're in Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 13. So starting in verse 13, Luke writes, We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. The next day we sailed, for, sailed from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So let's stop right there. So Paul has a timetable. He wants to make it to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, one of the biggest pilgrimage for the Jewish people. Now, obviously, in the history of the church, if you remember back in the early chapters of Acts, Pentecost held a special significance for the Jewish believers. And Paul is very eager not just to be there to celebrate Pentecost with them, but also in his journeys in the Gentile churches, he has collected financial financial gifts and support from the Gentile churches to the Jewish believers. What an amazing sign of unity that it's no longer Jews versus Gentiles, but we are now together in Jesus. So Paul is in a hurry. Remember in the show 24, how there was always that clock counting down? So kind of picture that going on in Paul's mind, because naturally, he probably would have wanted to go to the church of Ephesus. See, quick recap, Paul spent three years establishing the church in Ephesus. While he was there, he developed very close friendships. It's very likely that even though Paul wanted to go, for go to Ephesus, he knew that if he did, he wouldn't make it to Jerusalem on time because they were just too good of friends. Picture it this way. Is it easy leaving the house of one of your best friends? 
You usually get into more conversation. You usually end up losing a couple hours. Paul was being disciplined. He probably would get there and go, I'll only come by for a day and spend another three years there. So then for whatever reason, we don't know for sure, he ends up having some time in Miletus. Miletus is a port city that's about 30 miles away from Ephesus. Now, Paul didn't either, either didn't have the time to go up to Ephesus or he was carrying too much money, so he had to stay put. But he had the ability to ask the Ephesian leaders to come and meet them. And again, this is showing how close their bond was, that Paul didn't simply want to write them a letter, but he valued seeing them in person for what he knew was going to be the last time. But what's about to happen is we're going to see that Paul doesn't just want to see them, but he has one final charge to give them. And we're going to see how it's applicable to them as well as our lives today. So let's keep reading in verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. If you got your Bible and a pen, you got an app that highlights, would you highlight that phrase? You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plot of my Jewish opponents. Now let's unpack this because at first glance, it may seem as if Paul is bragging, doesn't it? Because it comes across as, hey, you know how I lived you, I'm, I lived among you, I'm amazing. I'm amazingly humble. I'm the most humble person ever. Paul is not bragging about himself. Actually, what Paul is doing is he is giving that church a model of what a mature Christ follower looks like. Think about why this is important. The Ephesian church is first generation Christ followers. They have had no models before. Paul is their only model of what somebody who has been walking with Jesus for a length of time looks like. Paul is leaving them, and as he says this final charge, this is the heart of his message to them, is that I want you to continue growing in your spiritual maturity. Paul is charging them as he often does in his writings. He's saying to Christ followers, grow, experience more, mature. And so with that, Paul is going to invoke his life. He's going to talk about the time he spent with them. He goes to the past to prepare them for the future. And he's going to list out four characteristics of a maturing Christ follower. Now, the first one is humility. And what Paul has demonstrated through his humility is that he demonstrated that he was not, he was not better than anyone else, whether believer or non-believer. See, what's amazing about this is Paul came from a life of privilege. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was educated at the highest schools. Paul was revered above anybody else. And the Jewish religious establishment used to use that to lord over other people. I'm better than you. I'm more mature than you. I'm more, I'm more spiritual than you are. And Paul demonstrated his humility by going that everyone, whether believer or not, is created in the image of Jesus and they deserve to be served. And that's what he talks about when it comes to humility, that a mature Christ follower serves without ego. And it also demonstrates his humility through the fact that he lived honestly. He was authentic. He wasn't a guy that when you asked him, hey, how are things going? He always said, good, great, not a problem ever. He was honest. Hey, sometimes this is hard. This is challenging. I cried. This was tough. He was humble enough to be authentic with people. So that's the first model of what a mature Christ follower looks like. Then he goes on to give us the second one in verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So the second example of what a mature Christ follower looks like is that they share the message of Jesus. They share the message that God so loved his creation that he sent his son so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. 
that Jesus died and rose again to take us from darkness due to sin to life because of Jesus. Now, Paul had a unique position in that he was a preacher. And so he mentions, he said this message publicly. He stood up at the synagogues. He stood up at public gatherings, much like I'm doing now. But that's not everybody's calling. But then he goes on to say he preached the message house to house. What that means is that he did it through relationships, through his friendships. House to house means we are sharing life with people that don't believe. We know them. We pursue them. We're sharing meals together. We're talking. And through word and through testimony of my own life, we are sharing the message that Jesus saves. And so he's saying that to a Christ follower that is maturing, sharing the message of Jesus is a priority. And then he goes on, and in his next paragraph, he's going to give us the third and fourth marker of what a mature Christ follower looks like. Verse 22, And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So the third mark of spiritual maturity is obedience, is obeying. He says, compelled by the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit is talking to him and he is listening and he is obeying. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Mike talked about, Michael talked about how the Spirit sometimes lead us to, leads us to good places. Sometimes the Spirit leads us to dangerous places. Our job is to obey. And Paul is talking about this. This is not exactly a brochure of good times in Jerusalem, is it? He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He just knows it's going to be hard. It is going to be challenging. I don't know about you, but if that was me, I would be trying to find every loophole to try to get out of going to Jerusalem. But then Paul explains his reasoning for obeying, and that's the fourth mark of a, of, of a mature Christ follower, and that's what I call perspective. There is a bigger God story going on that we are a part of. See, sometimes what happens in life is all we can see is what's right in front of us. All we can see is the trial or the hardship or the questions or the confusion or the not understanding. And because we can't see past this, we, we, we make our decisions based on our limited view. But what Paul is reminding us that when we grow in maturity, what it means is that we are trusting that God is bigger than this. That God is not only with us in our trials and our hardship, but God is above the storm itself. He has the power to calm it, that when he calls us to go, he goes with us. He does not abandon us, but he joins us in the danger. Again, look at his words when he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. To Paul what's at stake? He could choose to be comfortable. He could choose to not obey and not rock the boat. But when he looks at the big picture, what's at stake? Lives. God's kingdom advancing. People hearing the truth about Jesus. And when he focuses on the big picture, when he has the right perspective, Paul's response is, of course I'm going to obey because there's something bigger at play. And so these four examples of a mature Christ follower that he gives us, again, humility, spreading the word, obedience, and perspective on God's bigger picture. Now what Paul is going to do is he's going to transition from talking about the past to, to teaching them how, to, how this is going to apply to their present and their future. So let's read. Verse 25, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. Again, this is a big transition. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And so Paul is explaining what the beginning of Christian maturity looks like, and that is our response to Jesus. 
how you respond to the truth of Jesus, how you respond to the call of Jesus, how you respond to the question of who do you say Jesus is, is going to determine whether you begin the path to maturity or not. As Michael talked about this recently, see, an immature view would say two plus two does not equal four. There's other alternatives than truth. A mature viewpoint sees and accepts truth. What we do with Jesus can be the beginning of the path to maturity. And so Paul essentially is saying, you've heard me teach the truth. Now the ball's in your court. What are you going to do with this? And then he continues, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves. Would you underline that? Would you highlight that, please? Keep watch over yourselves. What that means is to the leaders, to us as Christ followers, he's saying, grow, mature, experience more of God. In the early chapters of Ephesians, when he's praying about the church, he says, I have heard that you're growing in my prayers that you would experience more, that you would grow even further. This is a common charge Paul gives us. And again, this is the foundation of this whole message. Grow. Christ followers experience more because your growth is going to overflow into everything else. Because look at this correlation. Keep watch over yourselves and in all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, being a shepherd is a biblical picture that we see often, but being a good shepherd means you know what you're doing. How we get to that point is by growing in our spiritual maturity. And then again, he gives us perspective that the church, our lives, was bought by the blood of Jesus. This body is precious in the sight of Jesus. Therefore, it deserves for its leaders and its followers to be growing in maturity because that's what he died to allow us to do. And then he goes on, verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. He's not giving them a very Disney movie ending, is he? He's not saying we've experienced some hardships, but you know what? Happily ever after, smooth sailing. He's being honest about what's going to happen. And he uses intense imagery, doesn't he? He says savage wolves are going to attack the church. And he lays out two types of attacks, external attacks and internal attacks. There's going to be attacks from outside the family, outside the body, and there's going to be conflict and infighting from within the family. Now, if we look this out of the context of this being a a warning to the church, Do you not see that this is the story of our individual lives? That our lives are about withstanding attack from the outside and withstanding conflict and attack from the inside. So for us individually and for us collectively, the message that Paul is saying is that our foundation, where we will find our strength in the midst of attack, in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, is in maturity. Because what happens when we grow in maturity? Jesus becomes clearer. His power becomes more evident. We see his spirit working in our lives. We see that we have not been abandoned. We see that the Holy Spirit is with us, holding us, leading, crying with us. We see that God is present and that we are not alone. And we see that much clearer the more we mature. And he goes on in verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I love Paul's humility in this. He's reminding them that as an earthly leader, he's transitioning out. But he's reminding them that they don't belong to him 
See, this is a message Paul does often in his writing that earthly leaders, people of men and women of wisdom are an amazing gift that the Lord gives us. But these men and women come and they go. We have seasons in our lives. Leaders like myself and Michael that get up here and, we t- and teach, some of you are going to outlive our leadership here at Rocky Peak. And Paul is reminding us that you don't belong to me. You don't belong to Michael. They didn't belong to Paul. You belong to Jesus. And even though transitions are hard and heartbreaking at times, he's reminding you, remember who you belong to. So I commit you back to him. And then in verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And what Paul is doing in this practical example, he's reminding us that walking with Jesus is a countercultural life. See, the secular life will tell you that it's all about you. Get the stuff, get the accolades, show how much better you are than people. But Paul is reminding us that as we walk with Jesus, as we grow in maturity with Jesus, it is going to be countercultural, and we need Jesus' power to do that work in us. And then finally, in verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. One thing I genuinely have always appreciated about Scripture is its raw honesty. Transitions are hard. And here we're seeing the Apostle Paul, this pillar of Christian leadership, weeping at the fact that he's not going to see his brothers and sisters again. And I appreciate this gift that transitions are hard and there is a bigger perspective, but we are able to mourn when they happen. So that's our passage today, and what I want to do at the time we have left is I want to unpack this charge of Paul's even further, and I want to look at a couple practical ways to apply this to our lives. So if you're following along on your note sheet, there is a section titled Paul's Charge, and your first fill-in is going to come at no surprise, and that's this, to passionately pursue spiritual maturity. to passionately pursue spiritual maturity. We saw it pretty clearly in Paul's words that he is passionate about Christ followers growing in their maturity. And that's something that we sense pretty clearly in all of Paul's writings and something that I appreciate because passion is our motivator. Because if you break it down, Passion is the reason we get out of bed. Passion is the reason why we leave our house. We will not get out of bed for something we're lukewarm towards. Or if we do, we do it in a dreading sense and we take our sweet time. Paul is passionate about us growing in our maturity because the kingdom of God is advanced when the people of God mature. The kingdom of God is furthered and advanced when the people of God mature. Because again, as I described a little bit earlier, as we mature, we see a clear, bigger picture of Jesus. We experience more of his power and therefore therefore trust him in a deeper way. So we're willing to take the risks he calls us to do. We're willing to be bold. We're willing to be light and courageous in a dark place. We're willing to do the work and be on mission because we feel more and more of his empowering spirit. Paul is passionate about this because that is how the church will grow, through maturing Christ followers. And one of the reasons why Paul is so passionate about us growing in our spiritual maturity is because he knows firsthand that the maturity, maturing as a Christ follower is not reserved for a small group of elite people, but it is for all. What did Paul come out of? He came out of a life where he was so zealously against Jesus that he not only preached against Jesus, but he was the reason why Jesus' followers were being murdered 
Paul's hands were dirty and bloody, and Jesus pulled him out of this, and he grew to be a passionate Christ follower through the power of Jesus. But Paul also came out of a life, came out of a, rule, a Jewish religious establishment that, that propagated this lie that Christian maturity, growing as a Christ follower, is only for the best of the best. Paul grew out of a world where the religious establishment would walk around going, look at how spiritual and mature I am. I am so much more spiritual than you are. God loves me more. Don't even try. You're never going to get to my level of spiritualness. And Paul wants to send a radically different message that that is not how God operates. And the reason why he's passionate about this is because that lie is still a danger in our churches today. See, when we view maturity as an optional part of our faith, we become comfortable with not growing. We become comfortable with Christians who become stagnant. Let me illustrate it this way. Back when I was in high school, I was definitely a C's get degrees type of student. Now, if you're not familiar with what that means, it meant that I was only willing to do the least amount of effort possible to pass my class. No more than that. I wanted to get the lowest possible C because it was still passing, but above that, I was not going to go above and beyond one iota. And it wasn't because I couldn't keep up or I wasn't smart enough. It was because I was arrogant. It was because I was lazy. It was because in my mind, I had more important things to do, which back then was jumping off roofs with my idiot friends. <laughs> but that was my arrogance, right? I'm not going to give this a time because it's kind of getting in the way of my life. So I'm going to give it mediocrity. And the danger in our churches is when we view spiritual maturity as something that is optional, when we view it as something that other people do, the really good people, the quote, perfect people, and it doesn't include us, when we accept and become comfortable with mediocrity, that is a cancer in our churches. Because what we may not realize is how we approach our relationship with God is going to set the pace for how we approach every other relationship in life. If I approach my relationship with God with a C's get degrees attitude, that is going to overflow into my marriage, my friendships, my parenting, my life as an employee, how I view things like serving and my time and finances. And now because I'm putting the least amount of effort in my spiritual relationship, in my marriage, I'm a C's get degrees type husband. As a parent, I'm doing mediocrely, just the bare minimum. As an employee, I'm not putting any effort into this. When it comes to serving or friendships, I'm taking but not giving back. See, the danger of being that type of Christ follower, an immature Christ follower, is that it is devastating to our relationship with God and to all other relationships. And so that's why Paul is so passionate about this point, is that he paints this beautiful picture that maturity is not perfection. Maturity is not reserved for the elite Maturity is not determined based on your past or who you used to be. Maturity is found in Jesus. And so what Jesus does is he takes imperfect people. He fills them with his spirit. He grows them to know him more, to reflect him better. And all of a sudden, now that begins to overflow into our other relationships. Now, as we grow in spiritual maturity, that is impacting the type of husband, the type of father, the type of friend, the type of worker, the type of stranger I am. Maturity has a wide impact, and we see through this lens why not only Paul was so passionate about it, but why he viewed growing in maturity as such a joy. And so that's his heart behind this. And so as we understand his big picture heart, 
what we want to do is we want to answer an important question that he did in our passage. What does being a mature Christ follower actually look like? Because the reality is if we ask a lot of people, we would probably get a lot of different answers. And in some cases, the answers can be good-hearted, well-intentioned, but off-base in that they limit who can be mature kind of continue to propagate this idea of the elite. Well, being spiritually mature means we know everything about God. There's no answer we don't have. Or being spiritually mature means we're near perfect. Somehow we limit ourselves to three sins a day and that's it. And again, that's not how Paul described it, is it? And so what I've done is I've taken his categories, I've condensed them into two points. There on your note sheet, there's a section titled, Two Ways to Mature. The first fill-in is this, obey. Obey. All right. Now, if we're going to understand this, and I think the truth is we're going to need to gain a new definition of what obedience means, or at least a new image in our head. Because I'm willing to bet if I ask you, What do you picture when you think of the word obedience? For many of us, it's not a positive picture, is it? See, think about it. What comes to mind just initially when you think of obedience? For me, I have two distinct pictures that come to mind. The first one is my dog. And the reason is because I think of like obedience school. I think of the whole rolled up newspaper and the fact that I'm often saying no, no, no. The second thing I picture are my kids. Because as parents can relate to, one of the most often said phrases in my house is, I really need you to obey right now. But what's the connecting theme in both those pictures? Is discipline. And for many of us, we kind of have an uncomfortable picture of obedience because we only see it as a disciplinary thing. The people that are demanding or asking our obedience are the people that we have wronged or authority figures saying, you messed up, now I need you to obey. Now hear me very clearly, that is an important aspect of obedience. We need to own when we did wrong and we need to obey, but that is not the totality of what obedience is. If you think about Paul's words, the way he defined obedience, it was beautiful. And this is the way... This is the way I've paraphrased it. Obedience is learning, listening, and following the model of Jesus. Obedience is learning, listening, and following the model of Jesus. In other words, by obeying we are taking steps to look more like Jesus in our everyday lives. Obedience is how we begin to reflect our Savior through our thoughts and through our actions. When you look at the life that Paul told them, excuse me, when you look at Paul's example, when he said, look at my life. In fact, he says that again in 1 Corinthians where he says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. What is Paul reflecting? He's reflecting the life of Jesus. He's showing them an example of how Jesus himself lived. And that's our call in spiritual maturity is that we obey not these nameless rules, not because we're forced to. We obey because it's what transforms us more into the life of Jesus. I like how Paul puts this. It's there on your note sheet in the book of Romans. He says, rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. I love that imagery. Clothe yourself with the life of Jesus so that when people look at you, what they see is Jesus. And how do we clothe ourselves with the life of Jesus? By obeying what Jesus taught, by following his model. That is why Jesus came to save us and he modeled for us the life we now get to live. And so with Jesus as our model, how does that begin to change the way we live? Well, briefly, let's look back at those four characteristics that Paul highlighted. Let's look at how Jesus modeled that and then what becomes of our lives when we obey and follow that model. The first one is humility. 
King Jesus left his throne, came into this world as a servant to love and serve a people that rebelled against him, that did not deserve it, and in fact continued to mock him even when he was dying. See, Jesus said, love your neighbors. Jesus said, love your enemies. And what do we see in the humility of Jesus is that those were not phrases he simply said, but he lived them out. And so what happens when we obey and follow that model? We become Christ followers that are filled with that supernatural love. We become Christ followers that Hold on to those commands to love your neighbors, to even love your enemies in a radical new way. We become Christ followers that enter a world that seems like it's all it is is division. We live in a world where we're divided about everything, where all we do is fight about everything. We can't have dialogue. It has to be a screaming match about every which way. And the example of Jesus is now we enter this world with the love of Jesus to begin to be peacemakers, to begin to build bridges with those that don't believe like we do, to share truth. See, serving and loving people is not the absence of biblical truth, but Jesus loved the ones that were even radically opposed to him. And imagine how that will change our world. The second example is in sharing the message of Jesus. Jesus came and he taught publicly, personally, that the kingdom of God is here, that the forgiveness of sins is at hand, that believe in God and believe in him. And so when we follow that model, that that is our mission, that is our call, what happens is we begin to go out into our world and our communities. What happens is we don't give in to this trap of building these walled-off Christian communities, but we begin making relationships with the people in our lives. We become being intentional. At Rocky Peak, we use the phrase, we develop one-lifes that we pray for, that we seek, share meals with, that we mow lawns together, that we go to the kids' games together, that we share life, and when opportunity arises through our words, but also through the testimony of our lifestyle, we are sharing that Jesus is real, and Jesus loves you just as much as he loves me. One of my favorite examples of this in Luke's first work in his gospel, Jesus encounters this tax collector named Zacchaeus. And tax collectors were some of the most hated people in the Jewish world because they were traitors. They had betrayed their Jewish brethren to work for the pagan Roman Empire. And not only had they betrayed them, but they became rich by ripping off the Jewish people. So these were some of the most hated people in the Jewish world. And Jesus sees Zacchaeus and he says, we're going to have dinner together. And not only does he do that, he says, you know what? Invite all your shady friends too. He went into his house, he shared a meal, and he shared how God truly sees them. And this is our opportunity. The third mark of maturity, obeying, listening, and following. Jesus said himself in the Gospel of John, For I have come down for heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The foundation of Jesus' ministry was listening and following the will of God the Father. See, how do we... How do we learn from this example? How do we learn from his model? We begin every day asking the all-important question, God, what would you have me do? God, how do you want to work through me today? We not only become a people that start asking, but we begin to, de to, to develop our ability to genuinely listen to God. I don't know about you, but there's sometimes I ask, God, what do you want to do in my life and really, I have already a prepared plan. I just want him to stamp it. But genuinely listening means, God, you know the desires of my heart. I'm putting them out there. But I want to hear, what would you have me do? Holy Spirit, lead me in the big and the small. And then finally, the fourth marker of maturity is perspective. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested, he was suffering emotionally. He was in an anguish we can't even describe because he knew what awaited him. He knew the torture. He knew the gravity of the cross. 
And just like any of us would in that moment, Jesus pleads with the Father and says, please, if there is any other way, please, if I don't have to be, could you take this away from me? But in that, what does he fall back into? Not as I will, but as you will. See, how do we learn from that model? There's going to be trials and tribulations in our life where we don't know the answer to the why. Why is this happening? We don't have the how. How are we going to get out of this? I can't see past this. There's going to be times in our life where we're going to plead like Jesus, please, Father, take this away. Please take away how I'm feeling. Please take away this trial. Please heal. And we're not going to be answered the way we desire. But in the model of Jesus in this growth of maturity, he taught us to rest and trust in that which will never change, the character of God. That God is good. That God is powerful. That God is Father. That he is rooting harder for you than anyone in this world ever will. That he is with you. That he is anguished alongside of you. That he is your power. And so when we face trials and tribulations, we are allowed to feel hurt. We are allowed to feel scared. We are allowed to feel confusion. But as we follow the model of Jesus, we develop a deeper trust that I may not know anything else, but what I know is that God is with me here. Do you see how following the model of Jesus impacts our lives? And then that will overflow into every other area. Ultimately, what I love about following the model of Jesus is that as we grow to obey, it becomes an even louder testimony to those in our lives that we love Jesus because we are basing our lives on him. I like how the Gospel of John puts it in your note sheet. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Think about it. We do not obey out of obligation. We do not obey solely out of fear. We obey out of love. And as we obey, that love deepens and grows. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So the first step to growing in our maturity is obeying, learning, listening and following the model of the life of Jesus. The second step, second feeling you have there is what we've been talking about. Focus on the bigger picture. Perspective. Now for the last uh, couple of months, I've been very obsessed with the musical Hamilton. That's on Broadway right now. Is anybody familiar with Hamilton? If you're not familiar with Hamilton, um, it is a telling of the life of Secretary Treasury Alexander Hamilton, and it is a combination of two unique things, uh, early American history and hip-hop. And at first glance, that shouldn't work, right? But it is fantastic. It is amazing. I really hope I get to see it in person one day because I love the soundtrack. And the reason I bring it up is... There's a song in particular that deals with the Battle of Yorktown. If you remember your American history, um, the Battle of Yorktown was essentially the end of the Revolutionary War. The surrender of the British, truth really, British troops there was really the marker of the end. And as this musical addresses that, it uses this phrase over and over again, the world turned upside down. The world turned upside down, meaning everything they knew about life has just changed. And now they need to learn how to live in a brand new world. And the reason I bring this up is that is an amazing phrase to describe what it was like when we gave our lives to Jesus, isn't it? When we gave our lives to Jesus, he turned our entire world upside down. We went from being dead sinners to living, breathing sons and daughters of the king. And now we are living in a bold new reality. And one of the biggest changes that happens is that we go from a small perspective to a bigger one. See, before Jesus, our focus was on a small picture. It was us. I was the God of my life. 
And therefore, everything I did was filtered through a couple of questions. Is this going to benefit me? Is this going to lead me to success? Is this going to, excuse me, is this going to make more people like me? Is this going to get me accolades or the stuff? But then when I gave my life to Jesus, he opened my eyes that that is a small perspective. Now I'm part of something much bigger. I am part of a bigger God story. And so because of that, now my perspective is asking questions. How is God working in my life? How is God using me to further his kingdom? How is God using me to reach people for him? And it's an amazing gift. And the more we mature, the bigger that picture becomes. And we've talked throughout this teaching about benefits that come from having the right perspective. But what I want to do briefly is hit one important one. And that's as we grow in our maturity, as God expands our perspective, what he does is he gives us a healthy confidence about the type of Christ followers we are. One of the most damaging lies that we sometimes believe as Christ followers is that we compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to those we find as spiritually elite and we end up dwelling on how horrible of a person we are. We end up dwelling on the fact that we don't do enough. We're not smart enough. We're not taking these steps. And hear me clearly, if we're being lazy, we need to wake up. But what happens is we end up focusing on the negative, this, 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 that we miss the work of God in our lives. But as we follow the model of Jesus, by choosing Jesus, we are choosing right instead of wrong. We are choosing light instead of, temp- instead of darkness. We are choosing his path instead of giving in to temptation. As we follow that model, what happens is he is growing us to see ourselves not through our fractured lenses, but the way he sees us. And he sees us as people that are capable through his power of making wise decisions, of growing in him, of maturing, and that builds a healthy confidence. See, the apostle Paul came out of a very dark life, yet you get the sense that he has a healthy confidence in his spiritual life, not because of his power, but because of the power of God in him. Do you remember in our reading how Paul said, I'm, my life is worth nothing. I'm just here to run the race, to fight the fight. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is Paul's in 2 Timothy 4, 7. It's widely thought that Paul knew he was going to die shortly thereafter. In this book in particular, he's handing off the ministry to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now think about it. Paul probably understands he's going to die soon. He knows that he's going to stand before Jesus. And through his maturity, he has a confidence that he can tell Jesus, I fought the fight you laid before me. I ran that race. I have completed it. And now I'm here. And that has made such an impact in my life that my, I'm, my prayer is to live such a life, to grow in maturity that when it's my time to stand before Jesus, I can quote Paul's words. We all can because of the power of Jesus. So as we grow in maturity, as we grow in this, we go from needing baby food to solid It's a beautiful picture that the author of Hebrews gives us. Look at your note sheets. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This is how this point is tied into the point of obedience. What is constant use? How do we distinguish good from evil? By choosing to follow the model of Jesus. By constantly choosing Jesus over temptation. And when we do that, we are filled with a healthy confidence that yes, the Holy Spirit is growing me. And so as we wrap things up, I just have one last question to ask you on your note sheet. How are you maturing? 
You are not your past. You are not your mistakes. You are not your shortcomings. You are who Jesus says you are, which is beloved sons and daughters. And so because of that, regardless of how you see yourself, Jesus wants to grow you to a new level of maturity. Jesus will give you the power to grow, to be more like him. And what we need to do as obedient children is to take steps towards maturity. And so how are you going to grow as we leave this place? Is there a level of obedience you need to give the Lord your life? Is he calling you out of a habitual sin? Is he calling you to have a tough conversation? Is he calling you to reconcile with someone? Is he calling you to trust him more when it comes to your finances? Is he calling you to jump into a ministry and serve? Is he calling you to lead a life group? Is he calling you to trust him to take that leap of faith? How are you going to mature? What is going to be the one or two steps you take? Because the Holy Spirit is with you to give you that strength. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we go into a final time of singing, this is an opportunity for us to connect with the Lord and let him do some work. This is an opportunity for us to listen to his leading. This is an opportunity for us to, through music, to declare truths that he's given us. Also, during this time of worship, we're going to worship through receiving our gifts and offering. Let's pray as we go into it. Father, thank you that you are our example. Jesus, thank you that you are who grows us. Thank you that it's your spirit, it's your power that grows and matures us. Thank you that you make us all brand new, that you give us a model to follow, an example, the life of Jesus. Father, thank you that you choose us, that we're not damned by our past, but we're defined by the Savior in us, heading into a bright new future. Be with us, grow us, lead us, Jesus. We are listening. We are ready to obey. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Let's stand up together. I hope that as we leave this place that you just feel encouraged by the Lord, that whether you're a brand new Christ follower, whether you've been following Jesus most of your life or somewhere in between, that the Lord wants you to experience more of him. The Lord wants you to grow more and more to be like his precious son, Jesus. The Lord wants you to see his presence in everything that you do in life. As we leave this place, let us be a people that are open to growing. Let us be a people that are open to maturing. Let us be people that say, Jesus, turn me to transform me to be more like you. Amen? Hey, as we, before you leave this place, if you'd like somebody to pray with, over along that wall to my right are some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry. They've got some badges on to identify themselves. They would love to pray with you and encourage you before you leave. Hey, next week, you gotta be here and join us. Michael's gonna be back and we're gonna continue Paul's journey to Jerusalem. See, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more, more people in his life are telling him, do not do this. This is bad. This is going to be very bad for you. And we're gonna see again, how does Paul sustain that fear and trembling through the power of the Holy Spirit? How does he rely on his maturity to obey even when it seems seemingly impossible? It's going to be a message and we hope not only you can join us, but you can invite somebody to come and join us. We'll see you then. Have a good day.